Welcome to the Yimbyist Podcast. The Yimbyist Podcast is brought to you by Yimby Eugene Springfield. Yimbyist is a nonprofit devoted to making housing more affordable for all residents of our cities. Yimby stands for Yes in My Backyard because we stand for the idea of welcoming diversity into our neighborhoods across all spectrums, including race, socioeconomic status, and housing types. We'll be discussing housing politics and policy on this podcast from a wide array of perspectives, so if you know someone who might like to have their voice heard, please reach out to us, yimbyes at gmail.com, or visit our page at yimbyes.org. That's Y-I-M-B-Y dot org. My name is Daniel Ivey. I am the Yimby Eugene Springfield Board President. I'm joined today by Reagan Watchus, a policy analyst with the City of Eugene, and Peter Chavan, Homeless Systems Policy Manager. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah. So uh, first, I want to kind of get started with a little bit of um, just kind of background on on the two of you and and, uh, that, you know, given... um, uh, Peter, your expertise on on the TAC report, uh, you know, we might just kind of end up transitioning right into that. But talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you kind of came to be in the positions you're in and, uh, and you know, why you're passionate about um, housing and, and homelessness. All right. Uh, so my name's Reagan. I am policy analyst at the city manager's office. Um, uh, so what I do for the city is work... Um, I work on a variety of the city's homelessness efforts. So out of the city manager's office, I'm um, the only FTE whose primary focus is on homelessness. So a lot of what I do is around coordination and communication, both internally within our six city departments and with the um, uh, supporting our leadership and city council and then externally as well. I'm a primary point of contact for the city. Um, I work on some of our particular programs and efforts. Um, uh, And then, so it's kind of, uh, this role is sort of a mix of um, on the ground, sort of um, technical, programmatic things, but also um, involved in the sort of higher level policy discussions as well and helping to support support those discussions too. So um, I've been in the role for two years. Um, and I'm, it was, uh, the position began two years ago. Um, and so, um, it's a little over two years now. And then, um, my, my background, I don't have a background in, in housing and homelessness. Um, my initial role with the city, I started with the city in 2014 and I was, um, the mayor's assistant for mayor Kitty Piercy. Okay. And so I supported her for her last two and a half years, um, in office. And um, Mayor Piercy uh, had a strong interest in homelessness, and um, so I um, got a good um, uh, sort of framework of understanding um, of how it impacts our community and some some of the local players in terms of the organizations and the individuals who are involved as I was um, working for her. And um, so, uh, and, um, and then I transitioned over into this position in early cool. 2017. So, yeah. How, how are you liking it so far? Um, I like it a lot. It, well, it's really challenging. So yeah. there are some days that are, um, that, um, are hard, you know, and, and it's a challenge. But it's, um, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. And there's a lot of really good people doing the work. And so... Um, it's, it can be inspiring in a lot of ways. Um, it can be also very uninspiring in the, the problem that we're trying to tackle and the real um, uh, sort of significant and, and um, 
They're probably uh, just kind of the magnitude of it. Yeah, exactly. Feel like a lot. Exactly. Yeah, it's, sure. it's really in, impacting people's lives. So in that sense, you know, I think all of our goals for everyone who's working on this is that we'll ultimately work our way out of a job and um, can take the <laughs> skills that we learn and try to tackle something else. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but, you know, in terms of the actual work in the day-to-day, it's, it's busy and it's challenging and um, there's a lot to do. Yeah. So in, in that sense, you're never looking at the clock yeah. <laughs> in terms of waiting for the day to be over. Yeah. Well, occasionally you get to come do fun stuff like be on a podcast, so that's yeah. good. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll kind of transition over to Peter, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what your background is just on how you kind of came to this, uh, to this spot here working for the city. Sure. Um, so for me, I think it helps to to hear a little bit about my youth and young adulthood. Sure. Um, my family's from Jamaica, and we moved to the States in the early 80s. Um, we moved from Jamaica to Atlanta, Georgia. I come from a mixed-race family, and, and there weren't a lot of families like mine in Georgia. And moreover, both of my parents were established teachers in Jamaica, upon arriving in the States, didn't have their credentials. And, and so for the first six months to a year, it was really trying to figure out where are we gonna live? We, we, we didn't have a house, we kind of crashed with um, various folks that we met either in Jamaica who had also moved or were friends of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so had some experience around housing instability at that point. Um, and moreover, had the experience of moving to a place where we were marginalized. Didn't use that language at the time, but but definitely had an an experience of feeling excluded from the community within which we were residing. Um, And that really set the tone for me for for the rest of my life. I've I've always been really interested in human rights. Um, It's been a passion of mine. My graduate work actually is in anthropology, Mm -hmm. uh, where I studied social movements and, and looking at second generation Americans trying to carve out places in San Francisco Mm -hmm. um, when they really didn't know how to navigate the systems that were in place there. Yeah, yeah. And so that that kind of set me up for my work. I didn't know that I'd be working for a city. I didn't know, I actually thought I was going to be a teacher um, working on empowerment for youth. Um, But I did know that empowerment and inclusion were were very important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, When I arrived here in Eugene, um, my first work was running youth leadership programs. And, and I should say, I've been in my current position for three months. I'm on special assignment working on TAC implementation. Um, prior to that, and, and I imagine after that, I'll return to my regular job, which is managing a community center in West Eugene, Peterson Barn Community Center. Oh, awesome. Okay. And, uh, you know, by virtue of being in recreation, and I run um, free summer programs throughout the city in, mm-hmm. in a variety of parks and and um, often encounter folks experiencing homelessness and, mm-hmm. and often work with city staff around how do we... Um, engage with with compassion and look towards solution and and not contribute to exclusion and alienation as we're encountering folks. Um, And then last year, um, I guess beginning in November, running November of 2017 through June of 2018, I ran a a pilot uh, program called the Downtown Youth Initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, so downtown, 10th and Olive, between the library and LTD, there are lots and lots of people 
who are experiencing homelessness. Sure. And, and so this pilot project was intended to work specifically with youth. Um, I hired eight people who are advocates in the community, um, not because they were advocates, but, but because I felt like they had the spirit to engage with a broad array of folks in, in constructive ways, and just staffed that corner for eight months and, mm-hmm. and did a number of things that professional social workers do. Mm-hmm. So, so in the jargon, we talk about things like diversion or outreach or navigation. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you sit with people and, and say, okay, what's your situation? Is there a way that we can get you into a more stable environment mm-hmm. um, to sleep, to live, uh, to work, whatever it is? And, and as we developed relationships with folks and discovered their particular stories, would work to connect them to housing, social services, jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so fast forward a year, and um, the TAC report came out, and I imagine we'll talk about that yeah. um, before too long. And out of that, the city and county agreed to designate two folks to co-lead TAC implementation. Um, I've done a fair amount of work with community engagement, strategic thinking. Um, as I said to you before the show, I, I'm a pretty good listener and uh, I like helping people knit together diverse ideas into a coherent vision. And, and so the opportunity came my way and I said, yeah, I'd love to be involved in something that's that's really important to the community and, and dear to my heart as well. Yeah, thank you for your work. Um, it's uh, it's it's sobering stuff, sort of uh, learning about some of those stories. I have a niece who is homeless and spends a lot of time in that part of town. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like we, we my, my wife is a social worker. She works for um, uh, Center for Family Development. But it's like uh, even, we, you know, even having a social worker in the house, we don't necessarily have the resources or the things to say to sort of say like, you know, what can we do to help or what, you know, within the boundaries that we can offer as a, you know, as a house that has two young children in it and right. stuff like that. So sure. it's, um, so yeah, it's a thank you for your work there. But, um, but yeah, thanks for transitioning us over to the TAC report. So, uh, so I, I do want to talk about that. That's one of the major things I want to kind of go over today and, um, you know, just kind of get, uh, get the word out about what it is. I think that it's one of those things that it's a very important thing and, and a lot of people don't know a whole, whole lot about it. Um, but, uh, so it stands for technical assistance collaborative, but, um, um, but what exactly is it, and, and you know what? what um, how, how how do we use it? Sure. So the Technical Assistance Collaborative um, came to Lane County um, at the invite of, of city and county officials, ostensibly to do a shelter feasibility study. We all recognize that that homelessness is a growing challenge for mm-hmm. not only our community but communities around the country, and and. Lane County doesn't have a publicly operated low barrier shelter. And so that was their initial entree into our community. Um, Upon arrival, however, in in looking at the number of folks experiencing homelessness, um, they quickly recognized that a low barrier shelter is is really just a drop in the bucket in terms Mm -hmm. of of the need that's out there. And, And so what began as a shelter feasibility study quickly transformed into a homeless systems analysis. Um, And out of that analysis, the Technical Assistance Corporation provided us with 10 recommendations that, if implemented fully, would would dramatically impact the number of people experiencing homelessness, Mm -hmm. the number of folks who are unsheltered in in the street. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 
So that report was delivered to county and city officials in January, at which point they said, all right, we need to figure out how to turn these recommendations into a framework. Mm -hmm. That framework becomes a plan, and that plan becomes uh, a transformation of our, our homeless support system. So, so that's kind of the, the quick and dirty around what the sure. report is. Sure. Um, and then, uh, so I guess kind of what is the, you know, it, just in terms of the collaboration here and, and you know, your, your departments, what is, what does that look like? I mean, what is the last, has the last three months just kind of been kind of getting your bearings, figuring out what the, what the best way to implement is, or what is the next, um, you know, is there a timeline, I guess, for what the, you know, the next couple of years looks sure. like? Well, so let me back up a little bit and, and try and give some context for, for the recommendations. If you think about our homeless support system um, in a sort of hypothetical but representative way, you can imagine that there are folks who are experiencing homelessness scattered throughout the community, right? Um, you can also imagine that there's housing scattered throughout the community. And if you can hold in your mind the, the picture of both people experiencing homelessness and housing as the perimeter of our system, they're barriers um, to accessing the perimeter. So there are lots of folks who are experiencing homelessness that aren't able to connect with access points. And that might be because they don't know about it, they don't have the right transportation, they don't feel good in those spaces, they don't feel comfortable with the people that are, that are doing that work. So, so that would be a barrier around the perimeter. Mm -hmm. And then obviously the, another clear barrier is we just don't have enough housing. Mm -hmm. right? There's, there's right. A, a severe housing crunch um, in Lane County and, and in many communities around, around the country. So, so, so we have, and, and in an ideal setting, information around people experiencing homelessness would flow to Lane County, which kind of is what's called the continuum of care administrator. So they're the, the organizing hub of our homeless support system. Mm -hmm. So in an ideal world, all of the folks who are experiencing homelessness get, uh, touch our points of access. We discover who they are, develop relationships with them, get a good understanding of their need, right? So that information flows into the core of our homeless support system. Similarly, the housing inventory that's, that's spread throughout the community, that information, both the total available stock, as, or the total stock, as well as available stock, so stuff that isn't actually being used right now, mm -hmm. so that information flows into the core, that, that central hub managed by Lane County. And, and so what we've been trying to do over the last three months is figure out a couple of things. Um, the appropriate roles for the city of Eugene, Lane County, mm -hmm. and, and, and much of this work has been between the city of Eugene and Lane County right now. Um, mm -hmm. Even though it's a, it's a regional issue, um, the city of Eugene has, has really jumped in and, and um, decided to, to take some leadership within the region around, okay, how can cities support yeah. really a county system? So, so part of this, this three months has been figuring out, okay, what are the appropriate roles for the two organizations? And, you know, I think where we're, what we're recognizing is as a system administrator, so if you think about systems, the point of them is to efficiently allocate resources, right. predictably take us to outcomes, uh, and 
monitor performance, right? So that's kind of what a system does. Well, what we've seen, and I, I you know, my history, my in-depth history goes back three months, but what we certainly know is that the system doesn't have the capacity to meet the need, right? right? Systems aren't designed to increase capacity or transform themselves. They're very much a management process, right? right. right? And so, as we look at the TAC recommendations, what's, what's emerging is that, you know, I guess it's like five of the 10 recommendations are around improving the system. And that's where the county, it seems like the county should be focusing its, its efforts. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to meet the need, we need to simultaneously expand capacity, more housing, better connection to people who are experiencing homelessness, mm -hmm. as well as innovate and explore new ways of doing business. Because, the, as I said, the system can't meet the need. And so right. we need to figure out tweaks to the system even as we're building out capacity. And that seems to be a place where the city can use some of its um, flexible funding mm -hmm. to support that experimental and innovative work. Innovative work. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of what the three months have been looking at. What are the appropriate cool. roles? What can we do? Yeah, and when we talk about sort of what the department does in general, I mean, when we're, when we're thinking about the... Um, you know, the different programs that are available, the, um, you know, we'll kind of, I think what I like to do is go into each one individually, um, you know, the rest stop, the car camping, Opportunity Village, uh, Dust to Dawn. These are all, you know, you mentioned that there's no one solution to the problem. Housing stock is one of the solutions. So, um, you know, um, so let's talk a little bit about those different programs too and how they, you know, interface with the you know is there an interface with the TAC report and you know what so what are we trying to accomplish with those different programs mm -hmm. so um yeah i think when first of all i kind of the four programs you mentioned um i kind of lump under the term alternative shelter and that's just a term that that i use um uh but those programs um while they provide um places in the city um, in different structures and formats where people can um, in a permitted be in a permitted and safe and stable location they don't meet the technical definition by the Department of Housing and Urban Development for shelter they don't you know they don't provide um, physical structures with plumbing and things like that so just to paint a picture for the listeners these are you know this these are alternatives to shelter but they right. do provide safe and stable places for people to be I do think that they um, so that when Peter talks about um, just the, the capacity and that the needs right now um, outweighing the capacity, particularly around um, unsheltered homelessness. Um, as the, the TAC implementation work continues to occur, there's, we do still have this critical need for places who are current, for people who are places in places that are not meant for human habitation, for them to um, come into some program that can serve as a, as a stabilizing place where they can keep their belongings, they can sleep dependably every night, they can um, feel safe and they can um, access um, services uh, that they need to um, uh, uh, make their way into to permanent housing. So 
These are four programs that the city um, has been supportive of over the last over the, the past years to provide those places across the community. So I don't know if you want me to go kind of through them right now. I, I'd love to, yeah, yeah, just because I, I, you know, personally, I, I know a little bit about, you know, we had um, Eileen uh, Shanty from uh, St. Vincent de Paul on, the, on a recent podcast talking about car camping. So we know a lot about kind of how that program works and about, you know, it's uh, the, the success and, you know, challenges that, it, that it's had. Um, I think that, uh, so if we, if we could kind of start there, um, I think that right now the program is maybe not as expansive as it has been in the past in terms of resources that are available or am I am I understanding that right yeah so car camping out of those four programs it's the oldest it's mm-hmm. been um, that program has been around for the since the late 90s or so and um, so there's kind of two parts to the program and I think I think you guys covered both of them um, but there's the overnight parking program which provides places across the city where people can um, can uh, sleep overnight in their vehicles in permitted locations. Most of them are on private property. Um, and generally, private property owners or public um, entities can grant um, up to six, but most of them have one to three spots on their property where people can um, stay in their vehicle. And um, the other part of the, that program with St. Vincent de Paul is um, the, the part that provides a response to um, illegal vehicular camping, mm-hmm. so, by which um, St. Vincent de Paul is the first point of contact when complaints come into the Eugene Police, St. Vincent mm-hmm. de Paul goes out. Um, so if we're speaking uh, about the overnight parking program, the permitted places um, where people can sleep, um, uh, I, th- I think we're, um, Tradition in the past, it's just provided a place for people to stay, and they can get hooked into St. Vincent de Paul services. But there's really not um, uh, there's really not um, case management built into that contract. There's not really um, a lot of resources going into really engaging those folks into services that will help them move on into housing. Right. So in that sense, people aren't moving through the program. Um, uh, Overnight, the overnight parking program is meant to be um, temporary for people so that they're, mm-hmm. you know, have a stable place to be just for a short period of time before they're able to get into housing. Um, in our current um, housing market and the challenges to getting in housing are, are just significant and growing. And so um, we're looking right now at implementing more, um, implementing case management services into that or integrating case management services into that program to help people uh, move on. And so um, that's one program. It's directed at um, folks who are um, have, uh, living in their vehicles. And by our city code definition, that also incorporates the Conestoga huts that you see around a town. Sure, okay. Um, and so, um, so that's one program. Um, I don't know if you want me to move on to the to the other program. Yeah, so talk to me. So and and we can just kind of briefly go through each one and, and talk a little bit about them. So uh, talk about Opportunity Village. So what is that? Yeah. So Opportunity Village is um, a single site. Um, it's Opportunity Village that's it's located over on Public Works property over off of North Garfield and Roosevelt, and it started in 2013. Um, it is operated by a nonprofit. Um, the it's com- is that uh, square one it's square one Got villages mm-hmm. that oversees that um and as far as i understand opportunity village was their first um their first program 
and it consists of 29 um, micro units. So again, they don't meet the technical they don't meet the technical definition of shelter or or housing, but they're um, they have their little micro units where um, uh, individuals or couples can can um, stay. They have communal spaces for um, a communal kitchen area. They have bathrooms and showers on site and laundry, and they have um, a heated yurt um, that functions as a common space and a meeting and sort of a library and computer access place. So um, that uh, is operated by Square One, and they um, work to help people transition into housing. And now Square One is getting more involved in um, their, their current projects are focused on permanent housing. Yeah, Emerald Village, I guess, is their yes. you know claim to fame, so to speak, and hopefully is a model that can be reproduced. If the, I mean, those are more permanent, actual tiny right. home type structures and, yeah. and stuff. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so then um, Opportunity Village was in 2013. Also in 2013, the rest stop program was approved. And so um, the rest stop program uh, provides um, city council approved sites in the city where up to 20 um, uh, individuals can stay overnight in a um, sanctioned and managed space. Um, so we have four rest stops right now, and we have two nonprofit providers that oversee them. And um, they uh, function in the same way. They, um, people sleep in either the Conestoga huts um, or in tents on platforms. And again, they're meant to be transitional and temporary for folks to, to stabilize and then uh, make those connections that they need and, and have some supports in making those connections that they need to, to housing. Um, and then the last one is Dust to Dawn, mm -hmm. and that one's also a few years old. It started as a um, more of a winter strategy, um, but this year we will be um, it will be a year-round program. And uh, as the name implies, it provides um, overnight sleeping for for people experiencing homelessness. It's intended to be low barrier. Um, uh, a, a low barrier option for people to come in um, overnight. Um, right now, the, the main site is out on Highway 99, and um, the capacity is 192 people a night. And um, with that program as well, we're working on implementing, um, or they, they've hired new staff to uh, serve in housing case management roles to help people um, get access to, to um, housing opportunities. So with all of these programs, I would say that they're, um, uh, we're working on um, integrating them and aligning them more with uh, the system so that um, they're not just providing places for people to stay, they're really working hard at making those connections that people are gonna need to, to uh, transition into housing. Awesome. Okay. Well, I mean, that kind of answers my next question. I mean, really trying to think about, um, you know, how we can use the information that we're getting from the TAC report. I mean, uh, is there is there a goal to make more programs like this or, or what is, you know, what does the future hold kind of thing? I mean, what, what are we looking at in the next few years here? Programs like the, these programs yeah. I just mentioned. Yeah. So I think there's, um, uh, I think there's this, um, what we're working on, you know, you can you can create more capacity by creating more sites. Um, you can do that. We could create more car camping sites. We could create more rest stop sites and things like that. 
Um, we can also create capacity by increasing the turnover and being more effective in those programs. And so I think that's what we're making sure to work on right now is to make sure that these programs are not just becoming sort of holding places where people have a place to be, but they don't really have a lot of options or they're not being supported. Yeah. And um, because as we know, the, the system can be very difficult to navigate. And if people don't have the support to, to help them get that ID or get their income um, set up with Social Security or whatever, um, they're... Um, if they don't have that, it, it's very difficult for, mm-hmm. for folks to navigate that. Um, so right now we're working on making those programs more efficient and effective. I, I think that that does not preclude that they um, that we make uh, have more sites come online, but we want to make sure that uh, for the individuals in the program that they are um, getting the best they can, getting the most that they can out of those mm-hmm. programs and, and actually transitioning, and we can create more capacity in that way. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that came up a lot on the podcast that Eileen and, and Lori Haber were on is the, is the idea that um, these programs exist and they are a tremendous resource, but there's just not enough case workers, the actual people that are able to get out there and do that. Is that mostly uh, a funding issue? Is it, uh, is it, is it the fact that the, there's so many different programs and we have trouble kind of connecting those caseworkers to them or what, what is the, what is the biggest challenge with getting, you know, more people into actually, you know, helping, you know, provide the resources similar to what the people that you were talking about doing on the, on the street corners and stuff like right. that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a resource issue and it's an imagination issue, right? So, um, we have his, we have a traditional way of addressing this this issue homelessness mm-hmm. and um, and we don't have the resources to address it that way currently mm-hmm. um, the timing of the TAC report was a little awkward because it comes out in in January and we're trying to we put together this framework and the budget process all of the all of the budget asks for the ne- next year or due in May and so neither the county nor the city you know had enough time to thoughtfully develop a tax implementation plan and mm-hmm. and i think that that's one of the reasons that we're super grateful that the agility that the city has to re- respond to to the tech report and and these emerging crises crises um, and so even as the county and city are, are trying to figure out what the end cost is going to be for full tech implementation, there is some funding to get some stuff happening right away. Um, again, thinking about the, the framework for tech, part of it is building out the perimeter, part of it is enhancing the core, and then the part of it is increasing our ability to rapidly respond. And, mm-hmm. and so as Reagan was saying, we have all of these alternative to sh- alternatives to shelter that aren't as tightly knit into the system as they could be. And so one of the things that we're looking at in year one where there isn't a line item budget for it is right. having these mobile teams that can go out to, to people wherever they are and do some of that outreach, do awesome. some of that navigation, do some of that case management so that when 
resources become available on, on the other side, whether that's housing or tenancy supports or whatever it is that people need in order to, to be stable in housing, they're ready for it. The system will be in place. Right. And, you know, one of the things that happens is, is you know, say I'm working with Reagan and I she needs housing and, and uh, there's nothing available right now. So I get her information down and I go and I talk to the other hundreds of people that are out there. Something comes up that's perfect for Reagan, but, but now I can't find her because I'm not right. connected to her anymore. And so that's one of the, for me, really exciting pieces about the year one TAC implementation is that mm -hmm. we're able to be in, in closer relationships with mm -hmm. folks and, and that, that support can be continuous as folks are waiting to get into a more permanent solution. Got it. So I think, um, uh, you know, we don't have too much more time. I don't like these to go too long just because I want uh, them to be, you know, pretty digestible to the, the common listener here. But um, uh, I, I've been deliberately avoiding asking what the 10 specific things are. And I'd, I'd love to kind of conclude with that if we could just kind of bullet point them. Sure. Um, and just to kind of give people an idea of like, okay, pie in the sky we somehow do secure enough funding to get these done. What is What do these 10 things look like? And so just kind of run down the list for us here. I, I'm gonna do it in a couple ways. So I'll give you the sure. 10 and I'll organize them in those three categories. So, so for example, building out the perimeter, that means increasing outreach, increasing diversion, which is a, a emerging practice where folks who, have, who are just coming into shelter sit with somebody, talk about why they're now just coming into shelter, and engage in, in a problem-solving um, relationship that says, okay, you got in a fight with your roommate, can we, can we do some conflict resolution to get you back in mm -hmm. there? You got kicked out because your landlord said that you cost too much in your house? Well, let's do some mitigation there and, and get you back into mm -hmm. that house. So outreach, diversion, rapid rehousing expansion. So rapid rehousing is is temporary support for up to two years for somebody who is moving into housing and, and they get two years of support to, to get them stabilized in, in their housing. Um, build 350 units of permanent supportive housing. So, so that's really the, the big thing. You know, mm -hmm. let's, let's get 350 units of housing available. And that is, is there like a price point that um, in terms of like what the what the person would have to pay, because I mean, you know you hear about affordable housing units being built, and then you hear about how much they cost, and it's like okay, well, how affordable is that really? And so this is three hundred and fifty, like you know, I mean, are we talking like tiny homes? Are we talking like so so? It's all on the table, right? Got it. This is something that that when we talk about innovation, this is something that we need to figure out. So the way that the permanent supportive housing is typically built um, through our partnerships with with Home for Good, Homes for Good, our local um, housing agency, three hundred and fifty units could cost something like seventy million dollars mm -hmm. to build, and right. that's a that's a huge price tag. And to get there in that fashion, it's going to take too long. Right. And so we need to figure out a different way. And, and all of the models are, are on the table and, and hopefully some things that we haven't thought of. Mm -hmm. you know, that's one of the innovative pieces yeah. the city's taking on. Yeah. Um, and then the last one within building out the perimeter is, is landlord partnerships. So are there ways that we can recruit private sector landlords to contribute their housing stock to, to homeless, to people experiencing mm -hmm. homelessness? Yeah. So that's uh, building out the perimeter. Um, in terms of strengthening the core, we're talking about coordinated entry revitalization. And so 
you know, as I said, as as people are outreached, their information flows into the cent flows into the the core of the system. That's coordinated entry. So they get an assessment. Um, there's some understanding around their vulnerability, their needs, and then they get routed to appropriate services and housing. Um, Best practice training, making sure that all of the providers and the county are on the same page around what it means to provide tenancy support. So, so if I'm contracting with Reagan to provide tenancy support, I know I can expect these certain things. Reagan knows that she's expected to provide these things. And, and right now, not everybody is always on the same page. And so there's, mm -hmm. there's a piece around that. Move-on strategies. So the idea behind move-on strategies is... You have somebody who's in permanent supportive housing. They they probably I'm going to make up numbers here, but they need a hundred dollars worth of support a month in order to main, maintain that permanent supportive housing. As they're in that housing environment for an extended period of time, they develop skills related to independent living, taking care of their place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They may not need that hundred dollars. They might be able to to move into just regular low income housing, mm -hmm. freeing up that hundred dollars for somebody else who needs that kind of support. Right, right. So so move on strategies, um, and then tenancy supports. It's just you know it's not just getting people into housing. It's also helping them stay there. And and you know folks who are chronically or who have been chronically homeless don't always have all of the skills they need to to maintain right, that right. housing. So. That's related to strengthening the core. And then finally, enhancing our rapid response. So that's a 75-bed low-barrier shelter um, that, that's a needed add to the system. Flexible funding. So, so most of the state and federal funding that goes towards uh, supporting folks experiencing homelessness you know, exists within program descriptions that have pretty tight constraints on you can use this money for these things. Right. And sometimes somebody needs a little money for something else that isn't, this, isn't in that program description, but were they able to get that? they'd be able to keep their housing. So, so some flexible funding there. So those are the 10 recommendations. And then, you know, another way to think about it is over three years, the system needs 350 units of housing, 75 bed low barrier shelter, and 19 staff doing a, a variety of things within the system. Got it. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, it, 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 um, I love that we have people that are, that, are very capable like the two of you that are that are putting forth efforts into this into this you know very worthy cause um i love that there's tons of data uh, at our disposal that we're not just making decisions you know based on emotional knee-jerk reactions to things it seems like there's been a lot of thought put into the process and and what exactly is needed and and i love that you know um I, my hope is that um lots of people listen to this podcast and they they hear about sort of what the efforts are that the the city is doing um and then uh yeah i mean please uh, you know, let us know if there's uh, if there's anything else that you want us to do in terms of getting the word out or trying to, to do other types of outreach. Any any closing thoughts or anything that you want to share just kind of before we part ways and uh, send you off? I, 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 here's my part, parting thought. Um, it's a huge, it's a huge challenge. Yeah. And we can do it. We can do it. We, you know, I've been working uh, with so many people on this TAC implementation. And I've, I've been so grateful at the sense of urgency mm -hmm. that people bring to the, to the work, the 
openness around, hmm, maybe we could try things a little differently. Um, and just the care that folks have for people who are experiencing really dire situations. And, and my experience, you know, I'm relatively new to the homeless system, um, but my experience over the last three, three months tells me that something amazing can happen if, yeah. we, if we keep our eyes on the prize. Yeah. Those are my parting thoughts. For sure. Yeah, I would echo that. But um, this really is, you know, while the city and county are working a lot right now to sort of figure out our roles and what we're going to be rolling out and what we're going to be working on, it really is a community issue. And um, we have some incredible um, service providers and people in the community who mm -hmm. really care. And I think that it's right. I think we're at this point where there's um, momentum and some excitement about the ways that we can coordinate in ways that we never really have before. Yeah. I mean, it's a big puzzle and trying to figure out is, is very difficult. But um, I think that there's going to be a lot of spaces for people to come around the table and and really problem solve and sort of a col collective impact model and and do some um, good things for yeah. people in our community. Yeah, I mean, with the point in time count coming out and, and showing that, you know, homelessness is continuing to rise, there's just a ton of um, interest in tackling that. And you, you hear people talking about it at the city council public forums and things. And, and I agree, there's a lot of there's a lot of. Uh, um, you know, efforts being put forth. Um, the only thing I want to close with, I started reading a book last night called Evicted by Matthew Desmond, and it has been extremely eye-opening. I think that in a lot of ways it um, points out, it's sort of a case study that follows eight different stories in Milwaukee um, in the, you know, within the last 10 years, and it really... Um, it's really eye-opening in terms of understanding the problems that lead to, to houselessness and homelessness and, and trying to, you know, help us empathize with the situation that people are in and also the, um, the systems that are in place that we're still fighting that are, that are really rooted in classism and, and racism and, and, you know, even in Eugene, those things are, are very prevalent. And, and so, you know, putting forth the effort to try to combat those is huge. So, well... Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, with that, I think we'll sign off. Great. Thank, Thank you, you for the invite. Yeah.